0: Welcome back to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, joined by my friend, colleague and co-host, Darren Exoacadamian. Darren, uh, this week we're going to do something different, uh, something that we don't normally do, uh, but something we do enjoy uh, doing, which is taking questions from our listeners. And uh, you kind of put out the uh, bat signal there for questions, and we received 20 questions, which is great. Uh, We're going to play a little game of 20 questions. Uh, We may not get to all of them. Some of these are pretty meaty, which doesn't surprise me, given uh, who some of our listeners are. Uh, So it's great to see these questions uh, written out. We're going to endeavor to get through as many as possible. Uh, So I'm looking forward to this. Darren, how are you feeling about it? I'm feeling good.
1: I mean, like you said, they are quite meaty. There's not quite, you know, what is the meaning of life, but something along those lines for some of them really trying to dig into either the political or the sociological or the underpinning reality behind everything, those kinds of things, in terms of trying to make sense of the UFO phenomenon and everything that's happening in our midst, all of the different topics we've discussed over time, people trying to really get clarity on how it works, wondering how they should reckon with different sources, how do they know when a source is worthwhile or not, how do you look into that? We will definitely point people in the right direction, And some things we can be precise on, some things not so much. And I think people will find it, I hope so anyway, illuminating either way.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, We're we're jumping into the deep end here right away. We've got a three-parter that we're just going to read all of it. And then we're going to riff on the various aspects of these questions. So here we go. What are we to make of subjects such as the secret space program? MyLab Super Soldiers, Project Montauk, Project Looking Glass, The Galactic Federation, and the Draco Reptilian Conspiracy. There seems to be an alternative history here, but it is difficult to tell truth from fiction. How are we to navigate this arena when some of the individuals that are telling these narratives, A, are borderline ungrounded, perhaps due to their trauma, B, are relying on channeled sources for their information, which may or may not be reliable? C. Are podcasters and authors with large egos, highly protective of their narratives and copyright? D. Are disparaging each other over competing narratives? And E. Are grouped into cliques that reinforce each other and act as gatekeepers for what is true? What are good quality sources of information about the real history of our civilization particularly in the modern era, that acknowledges the largely hidden activities of non-human intelligences and shadow governments around the world?
1: That is a pretty complex question, and I can understand, I can almost feel a bit of the frustration, the wrestling behind this question, because understandably so, there are many different sub-narratives that exist within the UFO phenomenon. I would say a few things. One of the things we learned from the David Grass revelations is that a lot of the lore that's been kicking around in ufology for decades ends up being pretty accurate. So all it is to say, I think there's something to each of these, but I would also caution that sometimes certain individuals, sometimes knowingly, sometimes not so much, depending on their degree of self-awareness, will take these existing narratives or these different elements of the narrative and go to town with it, so to speak. So I think you do have to be careful how much people take these to the bank, so to speak, and in some ways use them to develop entire narratives. And especially like he mentioned there, if they're podcasters or authors or people with an audience, then sometimes they will use that to draw people in. And sometimes, again, depending on their degree of self-awareness, will either knowingly or not so knowingly do that because they are fed by having attention. So we do need to be aware of those things. We do need to watch out for things like he mentions here. So I think in some ways he answers some of his own questions. In terms of a few things, channel material, yes. I think it's absolutely a useful way of obtaining information. I've used that. I have people close to me in my circles who use that. Absolutely. It's a verifiable, reliable way to obtain information, but absolutely, human beings get in the way as well. And we always have to have as clean a channel as possible. Some people are able to clean their channeling more than others, so be aware of that. Not all channeled sources are created equal. Yes, egos are an issue. If you notice an ego that seems to get in the way a lot, I would just say perhaps tune out of that person because you know that's going to be an issue. And yes, if you notice people kind of reinforcing almost like a clique-like committee around trying to present one coherent narrative, if you notice that, and it seems not to be based... On information and data, but more around, I say this because Bill said this, and Bill said this because Janet says this, and it's not really established, in fact, beyond that, then again, that's a warning sign in itself. So I think he's getting at some of these things. We do need to just exercise discernment. I think that's the bottom line here. You have to exercise discernment. If something gives you a sense of, "Mm, not so sure about this, then that's probably something to listen to. I think also the last thing I'll say before I hand it off to you is that I think one of the things I'm most interested in is us developing our discernment, us developing our energetic way of sorting through information, not just based on concepts, but based on relating to the energy directly, which is something I'm going to cover in the course I'm teaching soon. So this gives us an opportunity to do that, to really feel into it, develop other modes of confirming or denying whether something seems true to you or not. And
0: that's something I think I would encourage people with as well. It's sort of a tour de force of all of the different uh, narratives and ideas that have been thrown around in ufology over the last many decades. Uh, A lot of interesting uh, tangential ideas. And I think you aptly pointed out, because we don't have particularly excellent information, the vacuum that's created ends up creating these stories, these, these fantastical yarns that fill in a lot of those blanks. And they can be incredibly coherent. I mean, let's be clear, we can spin out a story that really makes a lot of sense based on a very small nugget of truth. And so that, that can, can seem on face to be very compelling uh, and very accurate. But just as you said, it's really important for us to to weigh and balance all of these different sources together. And that is incredibly challenging uh, because we're we are good at looking for patterns. Humans do try to find those patterns. And I think, as you point out, the the core patterns of the narrative are largely uh, true, at least the ones we have begun to hear about in the public sphere. So that is indication, at least to me, that, yes, there are a lot of strange stories out there, but a kernel of truth, there's a thread through line of truth that we find uh, throughout them, and we can kind of key into that if if we do, as you say, exercise a good level of discernment. The other thing I want to say about this is that The human tendency to uh, learn and want to know something as a means of mastery, right? And So I understand this desire very well uh, to want to understand a thing almost mechanistically so that by understanding it, I have a degree of authority and power over whatever it is. It's a control aspect. And I would caution us against uh, leaning too far into that desire, because there's an element to reality here that doesn't bend to, to, to this need that we have, to know every detail, every facet of what is, quote unquote, true. So we can often wield that truth like a cudgel in, in debates and arguments with one another. But there's, I would argue there's sort of a more transcendent quality of truth that we need to tune into that that transcends and, and supersedes the very specific factually accurate details that we crave. And maybe kind of giving up some of that desire for that factual accuracy and leaning into some degree of ambiguity or uh, a feeling, if you will, uh, a feeling for the truth. It's hard to do that because that's just not how we're programmed, right? We're used to really understanding things and you know mathematics and science this is the world that we operate in but I think knowledge operates in a, in a different level altogether although although those those areas are certainly one facet of knowing
1: absolutely a couple of things I would add before we go on to the next question is number one one of the challenges that ufology faces is that up until recently anyway we've had very little peer review little scientific or academic engagement. And because of that, people can kind of run with whatever hypothesis they prefer. And part of the reason why peer review is established is not because people just know that others are liars. It's not that simple. It's that we fool ourselves. We don't recognize our own biases to some degree we have no ability to, that it's just like a blind spot that your mirror doesn't cover in your car. And that's why you need a systemic kind of situation that can cover for those blind spots. So I think one of the things I'm looking forward to is having more academic engagement as this hits the mainstream, and we'll have some more of that covering. The last thing I would say too, and it relates to what you said to some degree, I think rather than trying to figure out how do these all slot into these pre-existing boxes that we think have already been established as consensus reality, I think one of the things that's the most useful way to handle this information is to just sit back, absorb it more with your right brain than your left brain to some degree, and just watch your worldview or your conception of what can be real expand. Let yourself ask questions about what could the nature of reality be such that these things could be true, but true in different ways than they maybe are portrayed by fitting into one box or another. I think that's very useful enterprise that uh, any of us can engage in this.
0: Excellent. And and what about the last aspect of this question, the the real history of civilization? I know a lot of people do crave Uh, being able to understand the ancient human civilizations or prior non-human civilizations even that may have been here on the earth? Uh, Any good sources there? How do you look at that problem generally? Wow. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's an episode in itself
1: because I would just say this, and this may be not satisfying to people, but something I want to say is that, again, once you have what we perceive as time travel. Then suddenly what preceded something else in terms of the historical ordering of events goes out the door. You can have an event that had its seed in the, what we perceive as the future, and yet it could also be responsible for what we perceive as our past. So I would say that some of the evidence I've seen that makes me lean in one direction right now to thinking some of the ancient civilizations we are aware of number one, sometimes that's actually the complication of a future version of our species actually being able to then rewrite history to some degree. And of course, where we stand from our relative point of view, we would have no way of knowing that. I think in addition to that, there also are some ancient civilizations that were part of the initial seeding experiment. I've heard this from some sources that I trust that were sort of like humanity- you know, one point zero kind of thing, and it didn't go so well. And as some people have suggested, it's been in the lore, so to speak. Those underwent reset. I think there's some truth to that. And again, that bears thinking about, meditating on when we think about the situation we are faced with, the challenges we are faced with, the cataclysmic kind of talk that's revolving around us. All of this, I think, is related to things that have happened in the past that iterations are very key to understanding how this entire thing rolls out. And we are not the first iteration. I will say that.
0: Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. Well, let's jump into our second question here. Another two-parters, so a long one, so hang in there. Consciousness-based mechanisms of encounters with UAP intelligences undermine the certainty of what we think we know about our interactions with them. If many or most sightings are visual displays using holographic type of technology Has MUFON mostly been chasing shadows for greater than half a century? The virtual experience of the first kind. If most abductions occur in an out-of-body experience type of matrix reality, with the targeted humans not physically going anywhere, what are the implications for the larger society that will have to eventually deal with CE3s and 4s? Virtual experience of the second kind, BE 2 If UAP intelligences can implant artificial memories psychically, but are recalled as if they were physical encounters in our 4D reality, does this undermine the entire close encounter literature? This is something I have absolutely struggled with, uh, and that's this sort of mental uh, trickery. Uh, If if the non-human intelligence that, that has been reported, interacted with, if it has the ability to make us believe or think or experience uh things that that feel as if they are real Uh, and again we can kind of parse i know we will the difference between what is real and what is not real quote unquote then there's this element of the trustworthiness of the experience like is it actually happening in reality is it happening in the mental space um how do we make sense of that and then how do we make sense of the encounters the abduction experiences the uh close encounter experiences throughout the literature, do we then look at those and go, oh, well, all of them are holographic in nature. All of them are virtual. Uh, To me, I look at this question now more from the lens of kind of picking apart what we talk about when we mean things like virtual reality and actual reality. If, as you and I have talked about before, reality is everything that's happening in our awareness then that distinction between virtual and, and real or physical, whatever, it almost does, doesn't mean, it's meaningless. And so in a way, it, it doesn't necessarily matter for me uh, from a, like a veracity standpoint if an, if an encounter actually was a physical, what we would call a physical abduction or a mental abduction. The end result is essentially the same. Although I think this is a challenge that we have, right? In, in a world where we want to see this uh, sort of traditional physical kind of proof to say, aha, there it happened. See, they their shoe was left on the ground, and their you know they I saw them float through the ceiling, and therefore it was a physical experience. Uh, and then somebody else can say, well, no, I had one, but I never left the bed. Well, you're a liar, right? I don't believe anything you say. We we, we I think you're going to have to challenge those assumptions and be willing to let those go, because in our in my view, and I think in our view, reality doesn't function in that way. Indeed. Some great points. And I think that's the first thing I would underline
1: is that I think all the different levels of reality are to some degree mentation processes. So in that sense, everything around us happens within consciousness. Everything around us is a manifestation of consciousness the same way that a whirlpool is a stirring of water. Fundamentally, it's still water. So I think that's true of what we generally call consensus reality, as well as some of these other experiences that people have in altered states of consciousness, I think they're equally real. I think one of the greatest illusions we need to move beyond is thinking that somehow this is more substantial than those other kinds of reality. Now, yes, absolutely, some of these others, and again, there's different kinds of others, that's one thing I really wanna stress here. They have an ability to manifest and manipulate these different ways of manifesting reality. And so that is complex. And sometimes again, we want to fit it into simple boxes. Is that real reality or is that virtual? And it's just not that simple. Now, is it the case that sometimes they can, for instance, with an abduction experience, take someone and just take their consciousness and put it into a matrix like reality that's described here? Absolutely, that happens. That's been documented so well, I don't think there's any question really at this point. But The other also happens where people are literally gone. We have cases where relatives, friends, or whatever will see that person's no longer in their bed. We have confirmation. I've had friends personally who've experienced an abduction and one of their kids or their spouse looked in on them and they were gone during that time. So could you argue that, well, they're just manipulating that person's perception as well? Sure you could, but then you kind of don't know where to end, right? You could ad infinitum kind of make that argument. I also want to make the point that people that I know personally, good friends of mine that were part of the abduction phenomenon that happened in the 90s, which I absolutely think was a real thing, not just a virtual process by which people were supposed to learn something else by thinking they had that experience. These friends will talk about sometimes and to put in really cookie cutter kind of terms or reduce it to the lowest common denominator that everyone can relate to. Someone described it this way to me. Sometimes you have an abduction experience where you're on board the craft. And you need to pee in those situations your body is physically there other times they were there and somehow they would know that they were there in their consciousness but their body was behind lying in their bed both things happen to the same people involved with the same kinds of beings this sort of demonstrates how complex this is i also want to bring in again the extra model that mike masters has developed the future human hypothesis i think these are very real beings just like us, just as real as we are. And they are part of what we consider consensus reality. They're not astral characters on that plane. And they have real genetic issues that they have run into and for various reasons have wanted to take genetic material to address some sort of malady or to perhaps seed a new kind of species that's a cross between us and them. I think the evidence supports that absolutely, that that's the case, that that has happened, that that's a brick and mortar, so to speak, real thing that happened, skin and blood in the game, so to speak. So I think both things are true. Almost everything you can imagine here is part of the mix. That's part of the complexity. But I definitely would not want to sign a blank check that says we should question whether anything happens in quote unquote physical reality. But as you pointed out in the beginning there, again, bottom line is physical reality isn't quite what we think it is either.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right, that's a good one. Uh, let's go on to the next one here. So I, I like this one. What methods are available to raise consciousness? Any help or training available to assist one in achieving a heightened state of consciousness would be of value to the audience. You haven't have like a course or a class you're thinking of.
1: This guy named Academia is indeed offering a course soon, starting in September, that's all about this kind of thing. That brings me to the the name of the course, which is expanding awareness. So I think one happens because of the other. When you can expand your awareness, you do raise your consciousness. And a lot of the reason why we have kind of a narrow frame view is related to our stage of consciousness and vice versa. I think when we learn through practice skills to expand our awareness of what's around us and our connection with each other and to the larger cosmic community and to the earth, that in itself raises our consciousness. As many ways you can do this. I think meditation's a great technique. I know some people have a hard time with that. I'll discuss some of that in the course. I think also you want to be aware that in many ways, you end up mirroring that which you're around. So if your desire is to raise your consciousness, then seek out sources that you aspire to be like and try to learn from those people. Recognize with as much honesty as you can garner, where you are, and recognize when you think someone's further ahead than you, feel into how you know they're further ahead than you. That in itself will begin to expand your consciousness. Take time to question some of the cookie-cutter assumptions that are part of modern Western civilization in terms of what is a successful life, those kinds of things. What if this life is actually a stage play to some degree for the evolution of consciousness? If that was the case, how would you handle... Your time here differently. These are all different things you can do. Again, I'll go into that in the course to a great degree. But the good news is, yes, there's many ways you can do it. And I think the fact that this person is already looking to do this is already, to some extent, a memory from the future, you might call it, Mm -hmm. of his higher self wanting this. And that is in itself the
0: seeding that produces the very thing. Yeah. And I recently had a, a great corollary experience to this uh, concept of how you, what you surround yourself with and how that impacts your consciousness. I went to a, a concert. We took our kids to a concert weekend uh, for a band. That, the songs that they know had a wonderful time. The audience was very family friendly. The energy was amazing, just very happy, uh, cordial, uh, great music, great weather. You could feel a connectivity amongst all of the attendees that, that you felt connected to your fellow person. Then on the flip side of that, coming back home, we had to do some travel through some airports, Uh, you know, in an airport, put yourself in an airport uh, where you've got people that are trying to catch their next connection that, uh, or they got to the desk and they found their flight had been canceled. Just surround yourself with the energy in that place. And you can tell the difference. There is a contagious quality to human emotion. And to the extent that we can, obviously we can't avoid airports. We have to use them if we want to you know, take long trips. But to the extent that we can, try to surround ourselves with people and energy that that is elevating, positive, affirming, and, and enhances that kind of connectivity that we're talking about here. Uh, because that will train you to recognize what the quality of that awareness looks like. Because when I, th- when I think about raising consciousness, that's really what I think we're talking about, is raising the quality of our awareness, that the scope of our awareness can be very narrow. Uh, think about if you are a child and you really aren't concerned with anyone else in the room, o- only your needs matter. Uh, as you get a little bit older, your sphere of awareness broadens. You realize that your, imp- your actions can impact your peers. If you become a parent, it broadens further. If you run for local office it broadens further you can see how your awareness if you are willing and present to it can can broaden and that changes the way that you interact with the world it changes your level of engagement with the world it changes the kinds of decisions that you make that impact what happens in the here and now and in the future and in many ways if you look at where we are now in the sort of cycle of the earth we've got this incredible degree of connectivity And we have these social tools that allow us to uh, kind of um, spread this energy virtually very easily, right? If someone says something negative to you on social media, you're going to feel that as if they were right there saying something negative to you. If you spread positivity, then they're going to feel positivity. It works in that same way. So we almost have like a collective awakening happening on the earth because of this degree of connectivity that we've achieved with our technology. And I would urge folks to, if you're going to use it, I think we all have to use it, try to use those tools in ways that also help to increase the quality of your awareness and quality of your engagement with all other sentient life. Very well said. And one last piece I'll add to this is that there's a
1: spiraling nature to consciousness development. And so what that partly means is that when you're looking to mature your consciousness, The first goal is to actually mature and fully embody whatever stage you're in. And if you happen to come across someone who you perceive as perhaps at a, and again, I know some people react against the hierarchical kind of nature of this, but there are positive, helpful hierarchies in nature all over the place. That's a big difference than an oppressive, human-oriented kind of hierarchy. So if you come across someone that is at a certain stage, it does no good to speak to them from a higher spiral arm in consciousness development because it literally will be beyond the ceiling of their awareness. And so one of the things that a mentor of mine, Ken Wilber, talks about is this thing called the pre-trans fallacy. What will sometimes happen there is that someone will demonstrate a certain behavior that someone else perceives as actually more primitive than the behavior that they exhibit or the stage that they're at. And the reason is, is because there's a spiraling nature to development And if you're at say level C instead of level D, then when someone from level D exhibits a certain behavior, you might look at the wrong way at that. Rather than seeing it from the verticality of the spiral, you might look at it and say, that looks like B behavior to me because you have no capacity to reckon with a D level. So the key there is to be aware of that when you're talking to people, when you're interacting with people. And if you wanna help someone that's trying to grow their consciousness, Then the best thing you can do is meet them where they are, help them fully embody, not just conceptually, but somatically embody where they are, the level they're at. And when that maturity fulfills itself by its very nature of the way consciousness development works and the emergent aspect of consciousness, that will create the seeds for the next level, the ascensions of the next level. But you have to begin by maturing the level you're at. And what I see with many, many people Even, for instance, in the starseed community, right? we hear a lot of those kind of people, they actually are rejecting and actually practicing a kind of spiritual bypass, not liking where they are, and suddenly trying to leap numerous levels above where they are. It's just not the way it works. It's not a wishing thing. You have to actually embody, mature where you are. And as you do that, you will naturally
0: sort of rise up to these different rungs of the spiral. Mm. Perfect. All right, here's another good one here. Uh, Let's suggest there are multiple NHIs here on Earth, or stakeholders of Earth. In that case, it's interesting that none of those NHIs, uh, or indeed true extraterrestrial visitors, have done a grand meeting, like a first contact Star Trek-style meeting, or made an unmistakable entrance. It's like none of them have a motive in showing themselves at a societal level, but some are okay with small groups or individuals. What would be the motives for this kind of small group interaction as opposed to the Star Trek you know, Grand Council meeting?
1: Well, I spoke about this in a couple of different places. I've talked about it in the feature series I did on the raw contact material because they talk a lot about that. I'll address that first, although I also talked about something that relates to this in my presentation I did at the New York conference last year. The first part has to do with this sense that there actually have been enterprises in the past, to use a Star Trek term there, where there was an approach made to different kinds of leadership in human history. And we're talking even ancient human history. And it did not go well. There was this assumption that if you gave information or technology to leaders, quote unquote that they would share it with the community and the entire civilization would benefit. And as the story goes, that almost never worked out that way. You ended up with kind of an elite group that kept the information or the technology for themselves. And therefore, that approach was ultimately deemed, through trial and error, to not be the best way to approach humanity. And again, what's very interesting, if you think about the revelations brought forward by David grush he's speaking to some of that very, very Narrative speaking to the notion that technology, even I would add to the mix, resolution of diseases and medical innovations that could change the course of our civilization, in addition to things like free energy and those kinds of things, that have been suppressed by either secret keepers or by the power brokers who benefit by keeping the system as it is, even if it's to the detriment of the earth and ultimately could seed our own demise, ironically. It's a really pathological kind of way of seeing things. 20th century history, I think, includes some of that. The last piece I will add, though, is that something that kind of came to me that kind of has been validated over time is that one of the ways that these others can influence our civilization is by seeding these ideas into our civilization, into the collective unconscious of the civilization. So many people ask, why did this remote farmer in Nebraska get visited by NHI and be given all these like amazing revelations? Why is it not going to like a politician or a famous person or something? And the reason is because that actual seeding, again, is available in the entire collective unconscious and can be drawn from, and some people will actually receive innovative kind of insights over time that they think is just coming from the ether, so to speak, but it's actually coming from that collective unconscious that is being seeded by more than just the source of humankind. That's one piece. I think also there's this recognition that because that going from the top down did not work so well, there has been this shift in emphasis amongst many of them to approaches like a grassroots effort. that It would actually grow from the ground up kind of thing. And if you even look at political movements that have really caught fire and changed our civilization, that's the way they've grown. They've never come from the top down. It just doesn't work that way. Often because unfortunately the people we elect are not the greatest examples of who we would want to actually be our leaders. The entire political process tends to, to some degree, produce the lowest common denominator kind of uh, result. So Many of them have found that this grassroots approach is actually what produces the most lasting sustainable change. Mm.
0: Yeah. Essentially, we have to put in the work. There are no shortcuts. Uh, We have to uh, kind of work at this problem of development uh, from a a grassroots level. Um, If they were to come in and just hand over all these things to us, I think we wouldn't learn any particular lessons from that. We would just go on behaving as we've behaved before. Um, Like you said, they may have tried that in the past and also found that that uh, failed pretty miserably. Um, All right. Here's a question that I... I wasn't sure I was going to ask you, but I I would like to get your take on where you are with the experience now. So, uh, Darren, I would love to hear more about your experience with the entity in the hotel room. What do you think it was? This is your own personal experience.
1: Right. Okay. So, first of all, I should give a bit of context just for those who have not heard about this account. So, In the early 2000s, I was traveling across the country with my wife at the time and our three year old daughter. And my wife at the time was pregnant with our son. And we were in a hotel room. And in the early morning hours, I was awoken by a presence at the end of the bed. I had first just assumed, based on consensus reality assumption, that it was our daughter that had gotten up. But turns out she was still sleeping in the bed next to us. And the being was too tall to be. My daughter, you kind of have this remarkable moment where your brain tries to make sense of what you're seeing. It was mostly humanoid, human-ish. And I got out of bed and moved towards this being, and as I did, it seemed surprised that I could see it. And then it proceeded to go right through the wall. So at the end of the bed, you when know, we were against this wall that was sort of like, you know, there's a hallway that runs to the front door that was off to the left, but it went right through this this wall. I did this very strange thing, which at the time made no sense to me. was very discombobulating, I might say. And yet later on in research, I found out this is quite common with this phenomenon is you do strange things. Speaking of their ability to control your behavior and whatnot, not just your perception, but your behavior, I turned around and went right back to bed as if nothing major had happened, as if I'd gotten up for a glass of milk or something. Now, what was remarkable is that my wife at the time saw the entire thing too and shook me out of my stupor and said, what are you doing? We need to talk about what just happened. By the way, as I came back to bed, so facing away from the wall now towards the bed, my wife at the time saw the being come back through the wall and then proceed to walk down the, the front hallway of the, where the bed was towards the front door to the left and went right through the door. So that was my experience. We ended up talking it over, decided we did not want to stick around. And we hightailed out of there. We got our daughter and we left. A couple of things that have occurred to me since then. Number one, again, just recognizing that this contains elements that are common with the phenomenon in terms of, again, humanoid and human ish beings are very, very common. In the most recent episode of POC and also episodes we've done, we've talked about the future human hypothesis, how even some of them could be from different slices of time coming back and some look more like us than others, depending on how far along they are in the evolutionary trajectory. My sense, it was something like that. It was a a being maybe along the future trajectory, partly us, partly not. And I can't shake the feeling that my wife being pregnant with our son at the time, that's part of the mix too. What was I only waking up at the end of something that happened? And the real crux is what happened before that. That could very well be the case. And again, people do have those experiences too. So that's the best I can make of it. Plenty of questions still, but I undoubtedly feel like something really profound happened. And I think it changed the course of my entire family's history. Excellent.
0: All right, here's the next one. Um, I would appreciate some discussion on the veil its nature, its origins, its enforcers, its NHI proponents, its NHI opponents. So here we're sort of alluding to the idea of a veil that is keeping sort of us contained within a, you the term partition hypothesis there, so partitioned away from other aspects of reality. And when this veil lifts, and of course we've heard allusions to this concept in religious literature as well. Uh, now we see through a glass, you know, darkly, and then eventually we'll see through glass clearly, right? Uh, When the veil lifts, we will see reality as it truly is. So is there someone or something or some ones responsible for this obscuring quality to reality that's keeping us from seeing it in its true nature? Uh, Are there people that uh, are beings that are for keeping us in the dark, so to speak, and beings that aren't? Are they competing with one another? How do you understand this concept in your framework?
1: Well, it's very complex to get into the fullness of it, but I will say a couple things because they are pertinent to what's happening right now in our midst, I think. Number one, just like I said a few minutes ago with the development of consciousness, that you get to points where once you've matured a certain level, you naturally create the seeding for the breakthrough, punching through the ceiling of consciousness to the next level. And by the way, when we have great historical figures, saints and sages, Jesus, Buddha, these different people who've broken through to new levels of consciousness that actually seeds the collective unconscious with new possibility, which we can all then embody and rise up into. In the same way, I think partly what happens is that the veil, when civilization itself gets to a certain point, then naturally this veil begins to dissolve. And that the veiling is part of a process that is supposed to happen for a certain civilization or a certain construct for a period of time, you could say. And when maturity happens, then naturally that sort of membrane dissolves and a greater construct of reality, the higher fractal can, comes into into being. So I think what I see happening in our midst, some people talk about this notion of the singularity. Another way to think about that is that there's a veil that's sort of evaporating because of the progression in our midst, and that that's going to allow for more and more bleed through with different realities or different constructs, you could say. And I think that's partly what explains why we are seeing more activity in our time. It's not just that some others have changed their calculus in terms of wanting to interact with us. The very nature of the way the realities have progressed is that eventually you get this progression where this evaporation of the veil happens and you get a more complex reality reflecting a higher fractal is what comes into being.
0: Mm. Uh, I love this notion of the uh, bidirectionality or omnidirectionality of engagement with the veil itself. It's not as if one side of the veil has control of the veil one way or the other. It's that when the, the, the two sides are at the point when they can meet, when, when they literally can interface with one another, that's the point at which the veil dissolves. It's a, a conscious awakening, right? Uh, think of experiences that you have in your own life as you mature, gain life experience. Uh, you can imagine what it might be like to do X, Y, Z. And when, the, when you actually have the experience, well, now you know, your eyes are open to what that experience is like. It's now part of who you are, how you understand that's where we are. We, we are uh, traveling uh, forward towards clarity, and, uh, and similarly, what is beyond that clarity for us now is, is coming to meet us in a sense. There is this merge that is happening between these kinds of realities, and when that happens, a new reality is born. And then there are new veils uh, that, that we will have to rise toward and eventually uh, pass through. So it's a really kind of beautiful way to think about the evolution of our awareness and consciousness, uh, even though I think traditionally it's just been more like, oh, there's like a curtain in front of us and we can't see behind the stage.
1: Indeed, you think about, I'll just add this really quickly. You think about the metamorphosis of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. It casts aside something that did serve an organic, important functional role, but at some point in the evolution, that is cast aside. Or you think about a, a snake that is able to cast its skin as it grows, and and I think there's an organic aspect to our very reality, to the construct itself, that also follows this kind of organic progression, and that's partly what we are nearing is that that metamorphosis happening.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, let's get into, uh, know a hot topic with this one. Uh, This is the question. Let's break down the control system a la Jacques Vallée. Does it align to the partition hypothesis or is it something more sinister? Maybe a temperature check on where we're at in development and how this will play into disclosure. I'll let you take that one first. Okay. Uh, control system. Yeah, I, I. This actually dovetails nicely, I think, with the veil conversation because part of what we perceive as control is not necessarily a an entity or being that is doing the controlling. We, in a way, are controlled by the limitations of our perception and awareness and experience. So it may appear to us as if someone's controlling us, but in reality the shackles are shackles that we placed on ourselves or that we just aren't able to see uh, by by the nature of what we are. Um, then I would also get to this um, kind of co-creation concept that there is, uh, we tend to think of uh, relationships being, at least in, in the context of of uh, the, these visitors and how they're engaging with us. And When we talk about the control hypothesis, it is often kind of con- talked about in a very more sinister sort of tones, but really uh, there is a co-creating quality to this engagement that uh, anytime another intelligence encounters an, another intelligence and they interact with each other, there is naturally this sort of bleed uh, over between one and the other. And and, and the, both parties are changed as a result. Sometimes that change is intentional. Sometimes, yes, maybe uh, being interacting with us either now or in our, in our distant past was done with a specific intention, and that resulted in something. But keep in mind that those results are not always easily understood at the moment, and they they may come back later on and haunt the people that did the the, the changing in ways that they didn't anticipate. So there is this uh, sense in which uh, if you mess with the system in any way, shape, or form, or just being a participant in it by its very nature, it is changing there is no necessarily like master behind the the, the controls that, that is that is unaffected by the way they are interacting with the machine it doesn't work like that it's uh it's very much a as you said earlier a very organic interrelational intrapersonal uh experience that i think is a little less sinister at least that's the way i think about it, it I, i'd prefer not to think of it as a a sinister type of force but i'd love to get your take on that what what do you think there
1: well, I think that's a great direction to go, and I think I want to highlight that. So again, I think more in terms of rather than these, this ladder where the higher rung controls the lower rung, it's not quite that simple. One of the things that's become very clear to me in communication experiences I've had with different kinds of uh, intelligence and, and perceiving different kinds of realities is that there is a complex interplay all the time going on. Think about the same way we think about the climate. You know, A century ago, people might have said, well, in Birmingham right now, the weather is such and such. And someone would say, that's weird because in Paris, it's such and such. And someone would say, in Mumbai, it's something else. And we tended to think about those things as microcosms, unrelated to each other. Now, of course, we recognize there's this incredibly complex, multifaceted, interrelational kind of way that weather works and climate works. And of course, that's just one aspect of a much larger question around ecosystems and things like that and the biosphere. So in the same way, our reality is constantly flowing into and being impacted by other kinds of realities. That's one of the things that became very, very clear to me, down to the point where every decision you make, every emotive kind of reaction you have, every thought you have is impacting other dimensions of reality and vice versa. And that happens all the time which relates to the kind of wave-like oceanic model of time that I talked about. It's not just time, it's the nature of reality itself. There's this really complex but organic flowing kind of intersubjective kind of experience between these different elements. And so that's very different than a very one-dimensional ladder-like one group controlling another, one layer controlling another. That said, there are still fractal elements to this too. So I think what I would encourage people to do is try to take these metaphors and begin to develop a picture that involves these. And it takes some work because we have been so framed into thinking that time is linear. Our very language is built around assumptions about the linearity of time. So it takes a lot of work to get out of that. But once you do, there's various practices you can use to do that, imagination being one, then you begin to see the bigger picture. But Yes I would lastly say there are sort of higher fractal levels that to some degree are like the teachers looking down on the kindergarten class between the fractal levels that happens too but it's a much more organic interpenetrating kind of dynamic than people tend to think about when they think of control systems or partitions
0: mm-hmm. and similar to what we talked about earlier it uh, it doesn't become reality until that moment is ready to cross into that reality so in a way you're current level of development and awareness is self-limiting to where you can go, what you can be present to, uh, as opposed to someone walling you in, walling in our society, preventing us from being able to see outside of it. Um, all right. So this next question um, and it relates to this a little bit. So will, will there be more open contact between the different civilizations after disclosure or confirmation? of the NHI presence at the highest political international level, as Steve Bassett has suggested.
1: So, this would be an example, I think, I'm thinking here of what Steve Bassett has said, of someone thinking and constricting their thinking to the structure they exist within, within the construct that they exist within, within the assumptions baked into our current model of reality. If you think of reality as being one-dimensional, we have a physical universe, and some extraterrestrials are visiting us from Alpha Centauri, and the goal is once we've had some real contact established, then we're going to throw a grand ball, and people are going to show up and drink martinis and shake hands with the three-fingered Alpha Centaurans and all that kind of thing. Doesn't quite work that way, because it's much more multidimensional than that. So... I think it's an open question, how will this impact the relationship between the different groups? I will say this, again, speaking of this veil and this dissolving of the veil or the thinning of the veil that's happening as we speak, which is causing some of the bleed through that we're seeing more and more, what you see there is much more like a fundamental changing of the construct. The construct itself evolves. And I think what it will end up looking like is very different than grand balls being thrown and martinis being drunk as we celebrate this new era and civilizations coming together. It's much more complex than that. The construct itself will evolve and change. That's partly what we're in the midst of. And again, I think that's where we need to think about the very construct itself, how that evolves and how that might change what happens within the construct. But we will not have things just as they are, but with more interrelationship. It's much more complex than that.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. This really speaks to the limitations of our current uh, expectations and awareness that uh, for, I get the mental image here of just this uh, lineup of galactic federation representatives sort of off stage, and the president's like, come on out and meet everybody. Uh, I think, as you point out there, it's going to be uh, far more complex than that, and, and and to some degree, perhaps disappointing if that's what you're expecting. But I would also point people to things that we have heard officials say and or allude to, and that is that there are aspects of this that they just don't understand, right? So it, think about that for a second. If, if that If that is true, there are aspects that they don't understand, and they already have crashed craft and bodies. Then what does that say to us? What does that communicate? It's not as simple and cut and dry as, oh, here's some beings from this other planet that have arrived and that's the story. Um, It's it's more confusing and um, uh, just going to be a challenge for us to digest. And so I, I agree with you. There is a sense in which our very way of understanding has to evolve. Uh, and, and until we reach that point, which could take some time, or maybe there will be a catalyzing moment that will help us attain that. Uh, until that happens, though, we're, we're not really equipped to perceive and engage with the reality as, as it truly is there.
1: Absolutely true. I just add one last sentence related to what you just said there, because I think it is key, and I tried to point this out on social media this week. We are seeing even political representatives say things that are basically doing what you're doing, and I would call that normalizing the unknown saying that this is real, point number one. Point number two, we don't exactly know what it is. To many people, they'll throw their hands in the air and say, what kind of response is that? What kind of briefing is that? And as we've talked about before, believe us, politicians generally do not like to do that. They don't like to hold press conferences, say something's going on, but then say they have no capacity to even understand, let alone respond to it in a constructive way and yet they recognize something is happening that is so key, so groundbreaking, that they have to begin to prep the public with the knowledge that something is here in our midst, and yet we don't fully understand it. And I think that in itself can begin to expand our consciousness collectively by saying there's aspects of reality we don't know yet, and yet it's real. That alone begins to make that boundary more porous and allows for imagination to play a role as the construct expands and perhaps even coalesces with another kind of
0: reality as that veil kind of dissolves. Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay. excellent. Um, All right, so for those factions of NHI that support the highest spiritual development of the human species, how would you best characterize their emotional state as it relates to our current state of affairs? Optimistic, anxious, worried, concerned? How do you think the NHI are feeling here?
1: Well... I would answer this by pointing to what he began with by saying, or she, I can't remember who asked this question, saying that the highest ones, right, the ones that are the most ascendant in their developmental consciousness, what I want to say there is that beings at that level tend to not be drowned in concern and these negative emotions around fear or trepidation, those kinds of things, because they tend to have a much more all-encompassing view of reality. Recognizing that any iteration, any construct within that fractal whole is only one small part of the larger picture. And that again, speaking to non-duality, because ultimately everything and everyone is source, a manifestation of consciousness, then nothing can be lost. And I've brought this up before, even on this podcast. And again, I recognize for some people, it might be a stretch, but even if this world ends in a cataclysmic explosion of some sort, that is not the worst thing that could happen because again, I would argue that this is a stage for the evolution of consciousness. That's why this exists altogether, that we get it backwards. We think, according to mainstream science, that consciousness is a byproduct of matter coming together in this really haphazard kind of random way until eventually you get this amazing accident. That's not the case. What we perceive as matter as a material universe is more like a dreamscape and it's a byproduct of consciousness. And the conscious agents, as Donald Hopin would say, are key to the process. The supposedly material reality, again, you bang your knee in a dream, it still hurts. Was that real? Was that physical? You begin to recognize how some of these questions are kind of nonsensical. So that's the case. I think they look at it like, how will this impact each of these beings? and their collective consciousness. Because again, these higher beings tend to look at things more on a collective kind of level. And what we see is that a lot of these species come together and have kind of this telepathic relationship with each other to the point where there's actually a shared sense of being and a shared sense of purpose and a shared sense of cooperation and responsibility. So they would bring that kind of perspective to whatever we're going through and see it very differently as a result. In the same way that Parents might look at a five-year-old breaking their toy very differently than the five-year-old would.
0: Well said. I don't have anything to add to that. That was, that was amazing. So, all right. Uh, the next question that we've got here, uh, and I know you're going to get into this to some degree in, in your course in September, but what protocols do you use to have contact? And we touched on some of this in some prior shows. I know you've touched on some of this in, uh, in POC. Uh, but do you have a, a go-to or one that you prefer, CE5, meditation, uh, altered states of consciousness, all of the above? Or what's your preferred mix there? Just say a couple of things. I do use
1: CE5. I tend to be not as rigid with the protocols in terms of spending a lot of time beforehand, prepping myself, and really thinking through exactly when I want it to happen and those kind of things and what kind of experience I want to have. I do think when someone's new to it, it's important to do those kind of things because one of the things I'll go into in the course is that the energetic resonance you carry with you plays a large role in seeding or priming whatever experience you're going to have potentially with another kind of intelligence. And so you want to be aware of what you're priming the experience with because if you are bringing a lot of negative residue to the experience and not being self-aware of that, that can very much determine what ends up happening. And that's why there is a sense that the co-authoring of this interaction is about one positive benevolent entity trying to reach out to a similarly aligned energetic kind of signature because underlyingly beyond bodies and material is this energetic resonance that happens. And again, it happens beyond space and time. So space and time are irrelevant. So you do want to be aware of the energy you bring to the table and be conscious of and have metacognition around what kind of energy you are like emitting into the cosmos when you're trying to make these connections. So for me, it does happen with CE5, but more so with meditation, because for me, you know, when it comes to UFOs, the UFOs are the least interesting aspect of UFOs. What's most interesting is the connection, the communication with another kind of intelligence. And so I often find that with my eyes closed, I have much more vivid, mind-blowing experiences, and that, that consciousness connection can paint in colors and textures and shapes and forms that transcend anything I can experience with my eyes open as a human being following a certain evolutionary trajectory from chimpanzees. So I tend to prefer that, to use meditation, to tune into that connection on an energetic level, which also very much takes form. I do see things but it's with the third eye, so to speak, or with your eyes closed. But that's that's the technique I tend to prefer.
0: Like it, um, and I would emphasize too, leaning into your intuitions, uh, and the subtle voice that we all have inside of ourselves that calls to us and says, you know, maybe you should go here and do this, or maybe you should, uh, you know, call that person that you're thinking about. Maybe uh, you should ask the, this particular question. That to me has often produced incredible fruit. Uh, where it reminds me of how alive and intelligent the universe actually is. Um, that it's not, I think we tend to think of these things almost as technologies. You know, that, that's a, it's easy for us to think of them that way. That we wield these as tools that allow us to do a certain thing. Like a hammer uh, is a tool for hitting a nail. But really, I think that the way in which these interactions occur happens at a far more fundamental, less non-technological level and tier.
1: I love that. And you're reminding me that in terms of techniques and those kinds of things, sometimes those arrive intuitively. And I've spoken about this a little bit, or at least I've hinted at it. I'll say a little bit more now. What's really interesting, and this relates to something I said earlier about when you're ready to learn or grow, the teacher will manifest, right? It's something like that. And what's interesting, it's not just on a linear one-dimensional plane. We actually have a a depth to our dimensionality as well. And sometimes what is guiding you, inspiring you is your higher self. That actually the evolution of consciousness doesn't just happen on one plane, doesn't just happen on one dimension. Just like when you, well, perhaps like run an AI program, I'm not saying we're AI, I'm not saying that, but what you will do that with that sometimes is run many iterations. So you can explore as many permutations as possible. And actually that's what's going on cosmically to some degree. And I was talking to you about that before we went on the air tonight. But that's even the case for us, that we are actually, rather than thinking about it as I've had past lives and I will have future lives, it's more like simultaneously these lives coexist. And those two interpenetrate and intersubjectively affect each other and impact each other. So what happened to me was around 2010 or so, I just had this protocol come to mind of something I should follow. I didn't get clarity at the time of like why I should do this, what would happen if I did this. I just had this inkling to do a certain thing. I've used that protocol ever since then, but that was very interesting because if someone were to ask me, did you just stumble across this? Well, maybe, but I think it's actually an interactive process with different aspects of myself and other kinds of intelligence as well. And I think just by being open to those kinds of possibilities and practicing altered states of consciousness where those things tend to bleed through more,
0: we will be surprised, pleasantly surprised by what can come about. 100%. Uh, You got got to train it just like you would train a muscle, right? You got to uh, sort of seed that intentionality into it and uh, and practice at it. And it it does become easier to do. and, and, And you'll be surprised at how much you see as a result. And I think this, re- this really ties into the next question that kind of go together. Um, how does the synchronicity phenomenon fit in with the world of anomalous experience? Does it represent a connection to NHI or is it entirely our own creation? So again, I think this bifurcation of us and NHI, it's a, it's a good way to sort of uh, approach the topic initially, but really that that bifurcation is in, in many ways meaningless. So that we are they, they are us. Um, I think the more we begin thinking about it in that, from that perspective, the easier this becomes. And so synchronicity itself is a is a, at least for me, is a signature, is a sign, is a quality of reality. It is it is there all around us, there present to us when we are present to it. Uh, it is that that clue in the system itself that there is intelligence throughout the entire fabric of reality. Um, and this ties into what I just mentioned about intuition. As I just as I tweeted recently, uh, you know, I was in another city. I was in Portland, Maine, and uh, wanted to go to a bookstore. Uh, it was a used vintage book store. These, these are things I don't normally do, and I had my family with me as well, so I had to kind of drag them along into this dusty old bookstore. But for whatever reason, this thought popped into my head. I wonder if they have this book that you used to have that you lost. And it was back when you were in seminary and, and you enjoyed that. Maybe if, if they have it, you can pick it up at a, at a good price and revisit some of that uh, again. So I go back in there and I'm back in the theology section trying to find this book. Somebody else comes into the section with me and it's very cramped. We're at the really kind of into of this uh, narrow little section of dusty theology books, dim light and everything. And I say, well, look, you're looking for something. I'm looking for something. Let me know what you're looking for. If I see it, I'll grab it and vice versa. They turn to me and they say i'm looking for something on process theology that's exactly what i was there to find so what are the odds that that would happen in a, in a city and a place that I, I don't know i don't know this person uh it's i don't know if there's a bookstore for theology uh you know why did i even have this thought to find this book and th- as, as you know i don't think many people who aren't christian <laughs> maybe don't know process theology is a very very narrow kind of theology systematic theology Not many people are even aware of it. So it's it's super niche. And the fact that that's something I was looking looking for and they were looking for just absolutely incredible and reminded me of this quality of reality that I'm speaking of.
1: Yes. And I was reminded, as you said, that of that experience we shared where we were sitting eating pizza. And I was telling you about this uh, remarkable time I had when I was a kid and kind of had these hippie like parents, was traveling around North America. In a Volkswagen van for a long period of time, and how amazing that was to have that experience as a kid. I was like five years old. And as we're talking about this, sure enough, there's a same year, same model, same color Volkswagen van sitting across the street in the mall parking lot. So that was an example of that too. Now, again, some people who have a very physicalist kind of perspective on reality will just say, well, that's just pure coincidence. And that'll eventually happen. And you're just, you're reading too much into it in the same way that people see the face of Jesus in clouds and those kinds of things. But I actually think even when you look at physics now, people like Nima Arkani Hamed, these cutting edge physicists are at the top of their game, leading their field. They are saying that the math itself, the data itself is telling us that space-time is not foundational. And in that sense, it's not really real. It's more like a shadow byproduct. And we're like the people in Plato's cave trying to make sense of what they think reality is by looking at these shifting shadows. That's what space-time is. That actually he's saying, others like him are saying, foundational reality happens at a deeper structure that is prior to and extends beyond what we perceive as the shadow of space-time. And so in that sense, I think about it like these kind of meaning waves. So there's this incredibly intense meaning structure that presupposes form and manifestation. And I've even had experiences where I'm kind of in that realm and it's extremely overwhelming. But to that point, because actually reality happens at this deeper level, this deeper structure, and the shadow, the byproduct of that is what we see in space-time, we shouldn't be surprised that when meaningful things happen, we see strange events manifest in space-time because space-time itself is not primary. It's derivative of a deeper process It has to do with conscious agents and complex interrelation between those conscious agents and the meaning that is formed by that intersubjective
0: kind of experience. I love that. Meaning is projected out into reality. And as it is projected out, it ripples out, it bounces back, it intersects, it amplifies, and uh, these things appear over and over again. You and I have had so many instances, just like you talked about, and and also where we will have a conversation and after the after we'll say I feel like we've done this before we have had this conversation before and, and I would say that not only is is this uh, activity is it, it's not only happening as we speak right now with one another it's happening to those who are listening to this conversation it's happening to those who will listen to it later on you know there is a a rippling and a uh, a cresting and falling of information that passes through reality and it's rich. It's vibrant, and it, it it takes on different meaning. Just as ha- all the, those books in that dusty old bookstore, uh, you know, they are written, they are published, they are forgotten. They land in a bookstore, and then they intersect with someone who is coming to to find them. That knowledge is not lost. It is revived. It is it is born again through that new experience. All we have to do is pay attention to it. Um. All right. So there's a few questions here. I think we kind of touched on. So I'm going to skip just a few, so we can kind of get through. Uh, the remainder, um, but I want to t- tackle this one first. Um, humanity appears to be in a uh, precarious state in recent years in terms of self-destruction. Do you think releasing the truth about UFOs of the phenomena will help or hurt this situation? Well,
1: I've talked about this on different podcasts recently. On the one hand, I think it will be a collective shock because we've so committed to a certain view of reality, and we have generally not been open to competing views, sort of dueling it out ongoingly. That's not how humanity tends to process their experience. What we tend to do is move wholesale from one view to another, and we completely reject the prior view. And Again, I want to call on Ken Wilber and his work here in terms of at a higher stage of consciousness, what you try to do is transcend and include the previous stage. So rather than making that mistake, as we've done throughout history, where we come across a new way of seeing reality, and we completely reject and throw the other way one away in the trash can, no, we say that that evolution of consciousness, that stage was helpful. It was partial truth, but it was truthful in some way. Otherwise, we would not have held on to it to begin with. So you begin with that notion that each evolutionary stage of consciousness serves a role, needs to be brought in to the next one, become the seeds of the next one. And in fact, many of the problems we're facing now in terms of division in our society is because we tend to repress and suppress and shame the previous elements that we think are embarrassing and need to be just cast into the dustbin of history. But energy and consciousness doesn't work that way. If you don't learn to mature it and integrate it It will come back. It'll come back to bite you. And that's what we're partly seeing on a collective level at this point. But what I've said about this disclosure that seems to be happening in our midst as we speak, on the one hand, it will be a collective shock to the system. It will not be easy for some people. There will be many different kinds of reactions. But that said, we are at such a precipice of self-destruction, I would argue, and so lost that we again are seemingly on this trajectory heading towards our own demise and unable to even recognize what we're doing. It's just remarkable when you see it. It seems like a kind of self-induced insanity, and yet that's the trajectory we're on. So as much as this will be a shock to the system, yes, I think it can only do good ultimately because the status quo is just not sustainable.
0: Yeah, and I think we, on a certain intuitive level, we feel that there is something uh, broken about this moment, but we also in many ways feel powerless to change it. It's like we're on a runaway train and we all know this isn't good, it's getting faster and the landscape is speeding by, someone should do something. Well, we can't get up to the engineer's uh, booth and, and, and slow the train down. Uh, so we know inevitably something bad will happen uh, and that that will change our experience of that train ride uh, in a fundamental way, uh, but in a way that, like you said, needs to happen. Um, I want to touch on this question because I do think this helps us expound on ideas that you raised in uh, your recent POC episode, which if you haven't heard that episode, uh, just hit pause on this one. Go listen to it. It's fantastic. Uh, But is there anything you know or have heard about the phenomenon that, while generally not discussed within the UFO community, is important to our potential overall understanding
1: Yes, there are a few things that come to mind. Things I've come across that I know are not generally talked about in the community that I think would help to shed light into the larger context. And that speaks sometimes to this fractal nature I'm talking about. I think what some people do, again, a lot of people do, we tend to do as a collective is reduce for simplicity. We want something that we can consume in one meal put it into our left brain, see it as history, something that's understood, that's been dissected, that's been categorized. And now we can refer to it like a tamed beast. That's not the way reality works though. So one thing I point out is that I'm aware of beings that we would consider either non-human intelligence or non-conventionally human intelligence, beings that you would call the greys of which there are different factions, different, even versions of greys. And often those greys are mixed in with these other kinds of beings that often have the humanoid shape. So you will have sometimes reptilians mixed in with a gray faction, uh, mantis types. So it's not like you can just easily categorize those and say, well, the mantis are like this and the reptilians are like this and the greys are like this. It's not that simple, even though you can notice some, some broad tweaks to that. But what I would say I think would surprise people that I think is relevant to this conversation about there being a fractal nature and even these different beings being subject to even higher fractal observational kind of constructs than they are part of, I'm aware of grays that have been abducted. So we often think of us as being the victims who get abducted by this one construct above us, this one fractal above us. But I'm aware that actually even they are impacted by the actions of a fractal above them. So we are aware that there is this hierarchical nature seemingly to this phenomenon. That's true, but there's even a fractal nature to the phenomenon, where even some of these graves and different beings will recognize they know a lot that we don't understand. Many of our perspectives on reality are truncated and skewed, and they're trying to help us, some of them, to come into a fuller understanding of reality. But they themselves recognize that there's some things they don't understand, and that they themselves sometimes are subject to this higher fractal that controls their actions and their behavior. And so it happens on numerous levels.
0: Uh, That's pretty powerful. I haven't heard that before, Um, but it makes a lot of sense to me, particularly in light of things that we've talked about, that uh, this is essentially a journey that we all are on. And by we, I mean just uh, consciousness itself, intelligence itself. This is the journey that it takes, uh, that it uh, evolves and explodes. And as you say, this fractal kind of architecture, Uh, and that means that uh, there are uh, a series of recurring patterns that we can identify. Which is, which is really beautiful in many ways because it allows the experiences that we have in our own lives, uh, even if they are limited in scope, we can transfer and translate those over into these other deeper architectural layers that, that are happening in this recursive cycle. And so it does give us a little bit of a glimpse into the root level, that, that deepest level of consciousness itself of which we all are a part. Uh, so it... Um, it does make it incredibly complex. We say that a lot. Uh, it does, I think, challenge a lot of the convenient and simplistic narratives that you see tossed around in the community, uh, because it is uh, it is far more uh, detailed and uh, complicated, and and in some ways um, mysterious. There's a mystical quality to it than the convenient narrative of you know here's a craft, here's a body came from this you know star system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, all right, here's another question here. So uh, is it correct to assume that a thinking mind, so getting into the kind of consciousness question here, that a thinking mind is a manifestation of consciousness? And if so, does that extend to anything else that is animated or has life, like like animals or maybe even plants, since they respond to external stimuli? How how deep does that go? Is it, is it sort of a, uh, panpsychism, you know, how do you think of this uh, concept of, of consciousness? Well,
1: I'd say there's a couple important components to think about. Number one, again, everything is consciousness. When you look at cutting-edge physics, or you look at ancient, pedantic, you know, Hindu, Buddhist kind of perspectives on the nature of reality, some of our forebears had glimpses into this. This absolute source nature of reality and they reckoned with the fact that you have manifestation where you have qualities and time and space anything qualitative anything that takes form anything that occurs in space and time is part of the manifestation prior to that is this source which has no qualities to it this is why in eastern spirituality This is defined by negation, what it's not rather than what it is, because the second you try to describe what it is, you're using qualities again, which is not what it is. So again, this is kind of beyond conception, but we can point like a finger pointing into the fog and say, it's something like that. And then you have to intuitively through a kind of gnosis process, intuitively experience that reality. And you can, because we are more than what we have been taught we are here. So that's key, number one. Everything is consciousness. Everything we see around us is actually just the stirring up the water of consciousness, if you will. That said, to borrow from Bernardo Castro's kind of model, beings like us and some of these others can be thought of in terms of basically being alters, like an alter personality that's split off from the original source. So you have the original mind, ultimate mind, which you might call God in some traditions. And we basically are like leaves on the tree of that source. But the way that actually works for people like us is that we actually experience this temporary feeling of individuality. And by taking a perspective over reality, we can begin to experience things. And only by taking that perspective, seeing everything else that is not part of what I am, can we actually experience qualities? Can we experience actually the manifestational world? So we are like, again, alters, personas split off from the original mind and the long sweep of history. Eventually we have the potential of reuniting with that original mind. And it itself then grows from the experience that all of us have gained through our temporary, illusory, but somewhat relatively true, individual experiences of a lifetime. That's the beings that are conscious agents. There are other kinds of beings that you could, I think, argue one way or another, whether or not they actually have a feeling of what it's like to be something. That's a way to think about it. So does an atom have a feeling of what it's like to be an atom? I would say probably not. There are some schools in philosophy that try to assume that actually every microparticle of reality has a bit of consciousness to it, and that they join together, and that's how you end up with something like consciousness. I think that actually is a kind of funny way of trying to force consciousness into a physical model and make it make sense, kind of like a square peg into a round hole. I think that actually, again, conscious agency is prior to physical reality as we perceive it. So does a rabbit have a sense of what it's like to be a rabbit? I would say yes. Does a amoeba? I'm not so sure, right? These are questions that are open questions, but that gives you a sense of how As consciousness evolves, you get to the point where eventually you have this temporary illusory but still relatively true experience of being a being, having a unique conscious experience from a unique vantage point, still ultimately being source and remembering that ultimately everything is just consciousness. There is nothing else. There are conscious agents which are again are more like whirlpools stirring in the water but ultimately are nothing but the water itself.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of it um, in some ways. I think of it uh, as Thomas Campbell likes to talk about it in entropy, in terms of entropy, and you know, decreasing entropy is a sort of a a way that information becomes organized. Um, before that, is it is incredibly chaotic and diffuse and formless. Um, and we think about you know how does the source come to understand itself? Uh, it has to have something to which it can relate with, and so. Uh, the image that I like to use, and I mentioned this to you before we went on the air, you mentioned in your POC episode, is, a, is that of a resonant chamber. You know, you're know, you essentially in a, in a void, a dark chamber, and you have no perception of where the walls are, the ceiling is, the floor is. You're just sort of suspended in this space. And by vocalizing, just for lack of a better way to think of this, you project out this energy from your body. That energy bounces off of the chamber and comes back to you. Now it comes back to you in many different and diffuse ways. Sometimes it is amplified. Sometimes it is very faint. Uh, but your relationship with that reverberation is what reality is. The is what reality appears to be to us. Is is the is the quality that it takes on that relationship with, with that energetic resonance. Uh, we could go on and on about this. It's a, a fascinating topic, and I know um, we probably should. Uh, you know, How does consciousness uh, evolve? How does it come to know itself? What are the different qualities of consciousness? These are all excellent questions. Um, all right, so we got a couple questions left, and then we're going to wrap up here. So it seems like people are putting way too much weight on government disclosure. So many people are having experiences, including those that leak into additional consciousness experiences doesn't it seem possible the others could just take disclosure directly to the populace? What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think it's a combination of the two. I think there is this recognition, even amongst groups of others that are beyond us, that are more mature than us in terms of that consciousness spiral. But they recognize that we do have leaders, even if they sometimes. Uh, Are not the greatest example of what we would consider leadership. Again, we have the lowest common denominator tends to rule the day, but there is this attempt often to try to let the change happen through the existing architecture. And so again, I'm aware of some moves that were made by some of these others. And I think I talked about this in the POC episode, where basically there was an approach made by a group of others to certain governments of the world, three governments specifically I'm aware of. And basically the notion, according to this narrative, is that they were told that now is the time for disclosure. If you want to control the narrative, get ahead of that narrative, then now is the time to do it. And if you don't, then it might just happen anyway. So I think that might be what's partially pushing This sudden shift we're seeing in terms of the calculus and the response of governments, not just incrementally moving towards disclosure, which is what you would think they would prefer to do, but the the pace at which it's happening has to do with the fact that, again, something perhaps is coming that's going to change the perspective, perhaps even the thinning of the veil and a fundamental change in our reality. Again, I don't think it's necessarily cataclysmic. It could just be something that is fundamental transformation of our construct, and we still need to prepare for that. But I do think they have tried, will try often working through the existing infrastructure. When we think again about what David Grush talked about, clearly he's talking about groups of these others making accords with military groups and political groups around the world, and that this is part of what's trying to be disclosed now. So they do do that. But again, as I talked about earlier, as we talked about, There is also, amongst the more ascendant groups that tend to be further along in the consciousness spiral, this desire to inspire, to encourage, and that's happening on a grassroots level, and that is absolutely happening as well.
0: Yeah, I I do think of it uh, also as this uh, relational disclosure. We we often kind of paint disclosure as uh, the traditional, I'm behind a podium and here's the announcement, but really disclosure is... uh, Almost think of it as um, the blooming of a flower, and it's it's not happening all at one moment. It's happening gradually, and it and as it unfolds, you see new qualities of the flower that you didn't see before. Uh, and and as it happens in our public spaces, you're finding that there are responses to to what is occurring. Uh, you can see evidence of this everywhere as permission is given uh, to talk about the topic more openly. You have more people responding to that permission by offering their own experiences, and then those experiences add additive to the disclosure. And I would
1: say not only additive to the disclosure process, but those shifts in consciousness may itself change and prime the construct itself for some sort of further evolution of the entire system. Mm. So in other words, if physical reality is actually a byproduct, a derivative of consciousness, Then as we, as a collective, begin to reckon with and draw into our sense of what is these others and these different constructs, that in itself strengthens and creates the tunnels, if you will, by which we can have experience with those. And that itself becomes kind of a self-reinforcing kind of process that
0: eventually changes the entire construct. Mm -hmm. All right, great. We made it to the last question here and then we'll uh, conclude. So uh, what are the dynamics between the two factions you describe working towards and against us experiencing a catastrophic collapse? Are they engaging separately with different humans, negotiating with each other? Will one faction die if the timeline is shifted from a certain outcome? Uh, Getting into some very specific uh, concerns here. What do you think?
1: Well, in the interest of time, I won't go into too much detail, but I will say a couple things. One is that Yes, you do have different factions that have different agendas, different goals. Again, when we think about the fact, as you and I talked about before we went on the air, that to some degree, some of these others are different future human groups. We think about how we can have very different agendas, very different goals, very different ways of seeing reality within our one slice of civilization as we exist now. That's also the case with them. So they have different interests, not just around individual events, but even around larger scopes of history. Yes, they are working in our midst, trying to make one thing happen over another. And I think one thing to really reckon with is that there's not just been one accord, but numerous accords have been made by different groups with different human groups. This is partly what happens. But I also add as a final piece here, that there is an overarching kind of, you could say control system or uh, parenting structure, if you will, some sort of council, if you will. Some people call this the Galactic Federation. You can use different terms. I don't think we should get caught up in the terms, but there is a group that oversees all of that. And actually these agendas sometimes can be working themselves out in real time simultaneously. And that what happens is part of that oceanic move of waves that interact with each other. There it isn't just this one decision point made and a one agenda put into action by this overseeing kind of group. Sometimes there are numerous things that happen, and there's even peace amongst these different groups, even when they have sometimes different agendas, because there is that kind of oceanic way of seeing how reality
0: itself unfolds. Mm. I mean, really, it's, it's impacting every facet, and we often put ourselves at the center of this grand story, but the truth of it all is it's, it's impacting every different aspect, every different you know, intelligent agent within the system. Uh, that, that there are lessons that they are on a path to learning and discovering uh, just as we are. And uh, we, we make mistakes just as they make mistakes. And so the entire enterprise is uh, very much, uh, in, it, it, we are all invested in it together, even though it just sort of often feels like, uh, you know, why won't they reveal themselves to us? Uh, why won't they bring us their technology? Why won't they bring us, you know, their, their incredible cures or whatever it is? Uh, it's all about us, 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 when in reality, it's uh, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, well, uh, Darren, I've really enjoyed this conversation. There have been a lot of great questions from our listeners. Um, very much appreciate uh, the questions, the quality, of the questions that have been asked. Um, and I know we're going to do one of these again in the future. We'll have to try to make this more of a regular segment because there there really are some, some great ones here. Uh, thank you very much to the folks that are listening along with us. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming down uh, from from Darren and from the show uh, that we look forward to sharing with you. And uh, if you're listening to the show, wherever you find it, if you, if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us a review or, or a like or subscribe, that really helps get the content out into uh, more hands and ears and that is greatly appreciated. So Darren, any concluding thoughts?
1: No, I've enjoyed it as well and I agree we should definitely make this a, a regular installment because interacting with the community is a great experience. And some of the questions, I think, allow us to go in directions that we might not have otherwise, but really enrich the entire conversation.
0: Absolutely. On that note, may the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on liminal frames.